So this is week two of uh, our class on covenant theology. Um, there's a handout over here if you haven't gotten one um, already. Um, so week one, we did an introduction to the topic of covenant theology and of, of what a covenant is. Um, so this class is being team taught by Jeremy Mullen, who is our um, campus minister at Harvard, and myself and by Kelly Sawyer. Um, and Jeremy started us off um, two weeks ago uh, in week one um, and gave a basic definition of what a covenant is. Um, does, anyone rem does anyone remember that basic, like if you, if you had to say, so as we're talking about a covenant, what is that? Does anyone remember? An agreement? An agreement? Yeah, we're looking for a, a definition of covenant for the purposes of this class. I'm gonna talk in a minute for, about how it's a little different from a contract. That is definitely the concept that jumps to our minds quickest, you know, in terms of where we, when and where we live. A relationship, yes, good. A familial bond, yeah, yeah, good, yep. Um, So that, that captures almost all of it. He, he gave two, I'm looking at his handout from last time, so I'm cheating. Um, so uh, he gave two definitions, one from a guy named Palmer Robertson, O. Palmer Robertson, who wrote um, this book, The Christ of the Covenants, um, which is excellent. I'm definitely relying on this a lot uh, for this class. Um, this is a really, it's both thorough and readable. Um, and just works through all of the Old Testament covenants that we'll be talking about um, and shows how they build on one another, you know, all the way to the new covenant in Christ. Uh, Robertson's definition was a relationship of oaths and bonds uh, involving mutual but not necessarily equal commitments. That's maybe too many words. Um, Klein's definition, uh, Meredith Klein, uh, a divinely sanctioned commitment. Um, Divinely sanctioned is maybe the only thing that we didn't hit on uh, just now when we talked about a covenant being uh, a relationship, being an agreement. Um, the difference between a covenant and a contract, so this is what I wanted to uh, start with a little bit here. Um, we're very accustomed to thinking about relating to other people through a contract, you know, which is, um, it's got more force than a lot of relationships, especially if it's legally binding, right? Um, but the difference between a contract and a covenant, as we'll be developing it in this class, is that a contract um, is a relationship in which um, the relationship depends on the parties behaving toward another in a certain way. Um, so in other words, if you go and you get a job, you sign an employment contract, and that employment contract will say, um, you know, I, the employee, am going to do uh, a certain job, right? And you, the employer, are going to pay me uh, for that job. And as long as I do the job and you pay me, as long as we both keep up our ends of this agreement, we're in this relationship. Um, but if either of us fails to do that, most contracts will include some terms for how the, con for how the relationship ends. Right? There'll be exit terms written, written out there. Um, as soon as the behavior stops from one side or the other or both, the relationship is over. A covenant, a divinely sanctioned commitment um, that has, Wilson said, a familial relationship. It's got family-like ties to it. And we see this all over the place, um, both in the biblical covenants we're looking at and throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, that was the context uh, for those covenants. We see these father-son terms. In a, in, a, in, a, in a covenant, the relationship defines the behavior rather than the behavior defining the relationship. So in other words, in a covenant, um, the one making the covenant, the one that we would refer to as the Lord of the covenant, uh, which in the ancient Near Eastern world was often a king, an emperor, um, would say, I am related to you. 
You know, something has happened that has brought me and you in relationship to one another. I have, um, you know, I, the emperor, have come in and defeated some tyrant enemy that, enemy that was enslaving you. And now because of that, I brought you into my empire and I'm going to treat you better. And here's how I'm going to treat you. Here's the behavior. Here's how I'm going to act towards you as a father. And in return, here's how you're going to act towards me. Here's the loyalty you owe me. Here's the tribute you owe me, right? Um, but the relationship, I am in relationship with you and therefore behavior. Um, that's what characterizes a covenant. What we're going to see um, as we work through covenant theology um, is how God has related to us through covenants in such a way that he says, because I have put myself in relationship with you, therefore, here's how I'm going to behave. Here's how you're going to behave. Um, and the beautiful, wonderful, hopeful thing about this is that the breaking of the covenant, or sorry, the breaking of the behavior, the failure on one side or the other uh, to live up to the terms of the covenant can't break the relationship. It's not a contract in which that can happen. Um, we're going to see this on display today. Today we're looking at um, the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham. And we're going to see how uh, in both of these covenants... Yeah, yeah. Yep. That's a that's that's a really good point, um, and that's and that's what we're going to see with 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 these two covenants and throughout that um, there is a um, there is a changing in the relationship, um, but not one that breaks it off. Yeah, Ti. So last time we talked about how we talked about the splitting of the animals, how that was symbolic of if I break these terms, may this happen to me. Oh, did Jeremy talk about that last time? Yeah. He's stealing all my thunder. Okay, okay. go ahead. Um, yeah, a little bit. So, How much did he cover? But what do you think that the, uh, the, the, this idea of a divinely sanctioned covenant would be different than the covenant is, covenants as they thought of in like, the ancient times that... Like, do you think it's atypical that, because in our covenant with God, if we break the rules, we're not cut off. But if like a, if like an inferior were to like commit treason against a king, then that definitely would affect the relationship. Yeah, yeah. So let me come back to that when I, because we're going to talk about Abraham. Yeah, so we are going to talk about that. Okay, so, so last time we did an introduction to covenant and we talked about the covenant of creation, right? We talked about the covenant made with Abraham. Yes. Yes, I do. Does anybody else need a handout? Okay. There you go. And I know one thing that Jeremy, at least it's on his handout from last time at the very end. Did he talk about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace? Okay. So this is one thing that can be a little bit confusing just in our in our terminology. Um, when you talk about covenant theology, on the one hand, you can talk about uh, just two covenants that covers everything. There's the covenant of works, um, which is the covenant um, in which God says, um, do this and you'll live. Uh, and on the other hand, there's the covenant of grace. Um, which is the covenant in which God says um, uh, to Christ, um, "You're going to, you're going to obey me, um, but you're going to take on yourself the disobedience, and your obedience is going to be given um, to those who have who have disobeyed." Um, and so, as Jeremy, I think, said last time, uh, that second covenant, that covenant of grace, doesn't set the covenant of works aside. It's not a matter of God saying sin doesn't matter, disobedience doesn't matter. Um, rather, it's a way 
of him, um, uh, it's a matter of substitution. It's a matter of this exchange um, in which the penalty for sin uh, is still paid, um, but paid by Christ uh, instead of by us. So on the one hand, you can talk about there just being these two covenant, covenants of works and covenant of grace. On the other hand, as you work through the Bible, we're going to talk about a covenant. We talked about Adam. Uh, today, we've got Noah and Abraham. There's going to be Moses and David. There's going to be a new covenant. Um, now, the one thing I want you to keep in mind you know, as we work through this is that um, once you get past the fall, so once you get past Genesis 3, um, everything you see from then on is an outworking of the covenant of grace. Um, and so one thing that Kelly is going to talk about is how it is that the covenant with Moses, despite the fact that there's all these laws, is nevertheless part of the covenant of grace. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk about that. Um, and, and we'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll see as, we, as, we, as we go along uh, how, that, how that works. Um, so there's a whole bunch of covenants made in history, but all of them after the fall fall under this covenant of grace. So let's start off by talking about um, the covenant with, with Noah. Um, we actually covered this. If you were here for Sunday school, the previous class that we did, uh, we talked about Genesis 1 through 12. So this is kind of review, and I'm going to go a little bit more quickly um, over this. Um, so what happens? In Genesis 6, um, we read that God looks at humanity uh, and he sees you know, that every thought of humanity is only evil all the time. Right? So humanity has just fallen into this state um, where it's just horrible. Right? Sin is ruling uh, over, over everything. Um, and he says... So this is Genesis 6. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Uh, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Um, so... One thing that we get in the, in the story of Noah um, is we get um, an archetypal, in other words, a pattern setting uh, view of what judgment looks like. Um, when God judges, so this happens here, um, but it's going to happen again. Um, when God judges the earth, you know, what that judgment looks like um, is in some sense an unmaking. Um, you know, if you think about what you see in the flood uh, and you compare it uh, to what we saw in Genesis 1. Um, in Genesis 1, um, God uh, separated waters above from waters below, right? And if you, if, you, if you want, there's almost this picture of God literally holding back the waters above. Um, and in the flood, it's, it's, it's almost as if metaphorically he's just taking that away and allowing it to collapse back together. Um, in Genesis 1, he separated dry land from the sea. Um, and there are psalms that talk about God, you know, holding back the waters, right? And, and setting boundaries and saying, you know, you can go this far, but no further. Well, in the flood, that is taken away. Everything comes back together again. Um, when he says he bl he'll blot out all these creatures, you know, these are the creatures that appeared in Genesis 1. And so you very much have this picture of a judgment that is, you know, literally an undoing of, of what he did uh, in, in Genesis 1. One other place that I want to point out where this shows up is, uh, is in Jeremiah 4. So Jeremiah 4, we're way ahead in Israel's story, right? This is past Moses and past David. You know, we're getting to the point where, um, you know, the southern kingdom is about to be judged, about to be taken into exile. Um, and one description of that judgment is Jeremiah 4.23. 
uh, to 27, where the prophet says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I, yet I will not make a full end. So two things to notice there. One is, again, this very explicit unmaking language, right? I mean, um, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. That's Genesis 1-2, right? The earth was without form and void before all the creation um, took place. Um, no man, the birds of the air had fled. Um, so again, we've got this explicit language of an unmaking. But the other thing to notice is that last verse. The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Um, this is something really key to notice about um, what God does when he judges, but also what God does when he saves. Um, the work of redemption, the work of restoration. That God does not simply wipe the slate totally clean and start over. Um, he says, here I will not make a full end. The story we're looking at now with Noah, right? He, he, he says, I'm going to blot it all out. But then it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the ensuing judgment narrative, the, the flood story, um, almost wipes the slate clean. And God could have actually done that, right? He could have just sent a flood, destroy everything, absolutely everything, and literally start over, you know, Adam 2.0, um, you know, very different from the second Adam that we, that we talk about. Um, but that's not what he does. He chooses one man. He chooses the family of one man. Um, and he brings them through. He brings them through the judgment so that, so that when we have a new start, we're going to talk a minute about this, in a minute about this new start, but when we have the new start, you're starting with something that's carried over from the old. It's not a complete reboot. Um, and this is, this is an important thing for us to notice you know, in, when we think about you know, redemption um, and about restoration, um, both in terms of, I mean, cosmically, the redemption of the world, but even individually. You know, we think about our own personal salvation, our own redemption. Um, that, you know, our redemption is truly a restoration of who we are to what we are meant to be. And not merely a complete wiping the slate clean. You know, not a replacement. It's not a destruction of what we are and a replacement with something else. It truly is restoration of, of, uh, of who we are to what we're meant to be. This is a pattern um, that we see uh, repeatedly uh, throughout these, these stories of um, salvation through judgment. Um, there's a lot of those. Um, any questions about any of that? I'm going to talk next about the, the covenant that God makes with Noah after the flood. So Genesis 8 and 9, um, God makes a covenant uh, with Noah. And this is the first time that the word actually gets used. I don't think I marked down the exact verse. Um, and I'm probably not going to be able to find it, just looking at it. Um, it's definitely in 9.9. 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you. Um, I think Jeremy talked last week about how the word covenant doesn't show up in Genesis 1 and 2, but all of the concepts are there. Um, but here it's explicit. Um, and there's two things to notice. So you know, one thing is to notice you know, the great similarities between this covenant uh, and the one that was made with Adam. And then, of course, there's, there's the differences. Um, we talked about this uh, a, few, a few weeks ago. Um, so... This covenant, um, you know, again, refers to uh, the creatures that fill the earth. Um, 
it again gives a mandate to humanity. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 7, again, you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Um, same thing that was said uh, to Adam. Uh, so this second covenant is um, maintaining uh, the first. Um, interestingly, it's a covenant explicitly made with all of creation. So God says, this is Genesis 9.9, 9, uh, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, uh, it is for every beast of the earth. Um, I was thinking about this uh, this, this week. Um, you know, wh why are all those animals on the ark? Uh, I mean, it makes a great story, right? Like the, 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 the children's flannel graphs are a lot more entertaining with like the giraffes poking out and, and all those kinds of things. Um, but why all these animals? Like why, why not just Noah, you know, or Noah and his family? Um, and again, you know, I think you know, what, what we see is this commitment of God um, to not make a full end. You know, yeah. So it had to be that big, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think what we've got is, you know, a God who is, again, just not simply wiping the slate clean, but is preserving not only the same kind of earth, but literally, you know, parts of the same world are being brought through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, now, when we talk about the, the, the differences, um, on the other hand, um, between the previous covenant uh, and this one, um, this is where we start to see that this is an outworking of the covenant of grace. Um, one of the things that tells us when we look at the different covenants made with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, um, that we're looking at the covenant of grace is that we'll start to see provisions made for what happens when humanity sins or provisions that assume that humanity is already sinful, right? So with Adam, um, you know, Adam was in a state where he really could have obeyed. He really could have obeyed God about, about the fruit, um, but he failed. Um, but in every other covenant we're going to look at, we're going to see places where it's explicitly acknowledged that God is already dealing with a sinful humanity. So let me just ask you, as you look, if you've got Bibles open, um, and you look at Genesis 9, actually eight and nine, there's at least three places here um, where there's some explicit acknowledgement that humanity is, is sinful. Does anybody see any of those? Yeah, yeah. So this is great, right? God is committing himself to preserve the order as it is now. Like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to destroy the whole thing. 
Why? Because it's so much better this time? No, the opposite, right? Like, I'm making this promise because man is sinful from his youth. Um, we're going to see at the, at, at the end, I want to point us at the end towards Hebrews 6, where it talks about God swearing an oath by himself. You know, God rooting his promise to be faithful to this covenant, not in the fidelity of his covenant partner, but only in, in himself. And here he explicitly says, I'm making this promise, and I have to make this promise, uh, because um, humanity is, is sinful. So that's one. That's probably the, uh, that's probably the most general. Um, there's, two other, there's two other specific... Um, there's two other specific provisions... Yeah, 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 um, yeah, he recognizes, you know, um, what happened with Cain and Abel is going to happen again, um, and he makes provisions uh, for that. Um, the last one is not so much a provision, and it, it might not jump out at you anymore, uh, or as, as much, um, but I'm looking at verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2. Um, this is something that was different. You know, this, this was not said back in Genesis 1. Uh, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. So there's, there's a new indication of um, the fear uh, that the rest of creation has of, of humanity. Um, I forget, forget who it is. Like I feel like it's C.S. Lewis. That, that talks somewhere about, you know, why is it that animals are afraid of us? Why is it that they menace us? Why is it they growl at us? It's because they know that we're in rebellion against their creator. Um, you know, um, and yet, you know, despite that, this covenant, you know, it's God making a covenant with Noah, but in him, through him, he's making a covenant with all of creation. Um, so Noah is still, and humanity is still, placed into this role of being uh, the steward, uh, the ones that are supposed to rule and subdue, um, you know, despite these explicit uh, indications that God knows uh, the sin uh, that is lodged in our hearts. Um, Okay, I probably need to move on uh, to Abraham just for the sake of time. There's a whole lot in, in Abraham. Um, any questions, though, about... So there's three chapters to look at uh, to see the covenants made with Abraham. Two of them are explicitly covenants, but... It's worth looking at the call uh, of Abraham as well. Um, so could somebody read Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 to 3? Great, thanks. So, real quick, uh, especially because we did spend some time with this passage like three weeks ago um, when we wrapped up our, our Genesis 1 to 12 class. Um, just two things to notice here. One, you know, when we talk about covenants being divinely sanctioned or sovereignly administered, um, that's really on display here, um, you know, where we have God you know, simply taking the initiative to choose this one man and this one family who has no prior relationship with him um, and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. Um, we mentioned last time, or we mentioned when we looked at this three weeks ago, how in the context of the Tower of Babel story this just happened, where humanity said, let's make us great, let's make a name for ourselves. Um, you know, this is such a contrast with that. That comes to ruin. Um, but here God is going to say, 
you're not going to make a name for yourself. I'm going to make a name for you. Um, and he's doing it, you know, totally at his own initiative. Um, you know, he is clearly the, the Lord of this covenant. Um, you know, Abraham didn't come to negotiate. Um, it, was, it, was, it was very much at, at God's initiative. Um, it's worth noting uh, right here when you ask the question of, so why does God do that? Um, you know, why does he sovereignly uh, choose or elect um, a representative human and family and eventually nation to work through? And there's, there's, there's two reasons. I mean, on the one hand, he is working redemptively within that person's life, family's life, nation's life. Um, you know, this relationship of, uh, I am your God and you will be my people. And that's going to mark Abraham, his family, his nation out as being distinct. But even from the very beginning, the purpose of working redemptively in the group is to work for the whole, is to work for all peoples and for all nations. Um, and we've got that, um, you know, even right here, uh, where he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Um, and then in the next verse, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, so that's just two quick points to make uh, from, this, uh, from this passage, uh, from the call of Abram that, that starts off this story. Now where I really want to look is at Genesis 15 and 17, where the covenants are um, explicitly made uh, with, with Abram. So this time, could somebody read? Let's see, how much of this should we read? Okay, so to get us up to speed, at Genesis 15, uh, God comes to Abram in a vision. He says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram says, How do I know? And he actually says this twice in this, in this passage. Um, you know, he's going to say, how do I know um, that I'm going to have a child? Uh, if you guys remember from the, the Genesis class, God's promise, you know, had always been um, grounded in this promise of seed, this promise of offspring, this promise of another generation that eventually would lead um, to the seed of the woman who would defeat the serpent. Um, and so this, this promise of an heir always looms large. Um, and Abram says, how do I know you're with me? Um, I don't have any children yet. Um, and the second time um, he says this is uh, in verse, um, well, he says, he takes him outside, he says, look at the, look at the stars, uh, so shall your offspring be. And then in verse 7, God says to Abram again, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And again, um, Abram says, O Lord, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Um, now, let's pick up there. Could somebody read Genesis 15, verse 9? Let's say through 17. Great, thanks. Um, so it sounds like Jeremy started to talk about 
some of what's going on here uh, last time. Um, it is an odd scene, right? Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're not familiar with the way ancient Near Eastern covenants were made, um, one thing is that in the, in the Bible when it says, you know, so-and-so made a covenant, it, it often literally says he cut a covenant. Um, and he cut a covenant refers to this ritual that we're seeing here. So um, what's going on here, as Jeremy, I think, said last time, um, is that uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, when two parties would make a covenant, um, you know, those covenants would always have like certain elements. There'd be, um, there'd be some story about here's how we've come into this relationship. Um, the Lord of the covenant would, would then give some kind of declaration of, therefore, I am as a father to you, you are as a son to me. Then there would be behavior, right? Therefore, here's how you're, you're going to act, and here's how I'm going to act. Um, and then there would be blessings and there'd be curses, usually both, sometimes only one or the other. Um, basically, blessings as long as we obey the terms of the covenant, but curses um, if we if we don't. Um, and there would always be a sign of a covenant. There'd be some visible, tangible, like something, you know, to go with it, uh, to make um, apparent in some demonstrable, sensible way. Um, and usually that sign would pertain either to the blessing or to the curse that goes uh, with, with the covenant. Um, in this case, what's going on here um, is that the sign of the covenant um, is these animals. Uh, and it's describing the curse. So what would happen is, this is one way of, you know, of, of cementing a covenant, is that the two parties you know, would do this. They would take animals, they would cut them in half, um, and then the two parties would walk arm in arm through the pieces of the covenant. They'd, they'd, they'd pass through. Um, and that was a way of signifying, if I break the terms of the covenant, may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals, right? And so the typical thing is for the two parties uh, to go through uh, together to both be taking that burden on themselves uh, in, in equal share, right? Um, so the amazing thing about this covenant, of course, um, is that when it's made, um, Abraham appears to be in some kind of a deep sleep. Verse 12 says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Um, the word there uh, for deep sleep, the only other place it shows up in the Bible, um, is the description of the sleep that God put Adam into at the creation of Eve. Um, so Abraham is, well, out of it. Uh, he is not able uh, to, you know, actively, you know, participate in this in this covenant at this point. Um, God makes a bunch of promises to him, you know, while he's in that in that sleep. And then, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed um, between these pieces. And the picture, what we have going on here, is a picture of God by Himself passing through these pieces. So God saying by himself, if this covenant is broken, may it be done to me as it's been done uh, to, these, to these pieces. Abraham actually has no part in that. Um, this is why Genesis 15 you know, often is referred to, well, it's referred to in two ways. On your hand, handout, there's this term, the, the self-maledictory oath. Um, Self-maledictory just means taking curses on yourself, right? So God is making this, this oath uh, in which he is taking on the burden of, of keeping this covenant entirely on his own. Um, it's also referred to as the unilateral covenant. It's also referred to as, um, you know, God entirely taking the initiative, you know, and making this covenant with, with Abraham. Um, again, yeah, in a way that, that takes the burden of it uh, completely onto himself. Um, Is it done that because uh, we sometimes think of it 
Yeah, yeah. Well, no, this is, I mean, this is a good point. So, um, I mean, this is, this is a very graphic way of describing. He saw people who were serialized mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm 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 not as, I'm not as familiar with 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 that, um, but I think what we see um, I thought what you were saying in the in your in your first comment, um, which is true, is that there's this very graphic depiction, you know, of these of these penalties. Right. Yeah. So we, we might be able to come back to that um, later on, or maybe you and I could could, could talk about that that afterwards. Um, are there any other questions about this chapter um, in particular, about Genesis 15? Yeah, Andy. Uh, if this is probably unilateral, is this unilateral in a different way than the covenant with Noah and the God was saying? Um, no, actually, I think we see in, in, in that sense, I think there's some things that carry over that are, I, th I think there's the same thing that we see in, in the covenant with Noah, um, you know, that it is very much a unilateral, I am promising not to do this again, I'm explicitly acknowledging that you're going to fail, right? Um, there's even, I didn't mention this, but the sign of the covenant, the sign of the covenant with Noah was that rainbow, right? Um, and I, I finally found, you know, for a while I've been saying, so that rainbow, um, I've mentioned before, the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about how the rainbow is pointing up, right? It's like hung up like this, and it's, the arrow is going up towards heaven, um, you know, as though God is taking that curse on himself. Well, I finally found a source other than the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, it turns out that's actually a very, very old, there's a medieval poem um, that, that describes that, but I found that in, uh, in John Murray's commentary. Um, apparently this, yeah, that, that idea has a much older history than um, Tim Keller or Sally Lloyd-Jones. Um, but again, that idea that the sign of the covenant with Noah, um, you know, has some of that imagery of God, you know, taking the penalty on himself, um, if, if it's ever broken. Yeah, so I think there's a similar unilateral thing going on there. Yeah. One disadvantage, so I'm going to talk about chapter 17 now. One disadvantage to referring to Genesis 15 is the unilateral covenant, which is a, a common theme, um, is that it kind of sets you up to think, oh, so there must be something coming where there must be something coming where it really does depend on both, right? It really does depend on, on both parties. Um, when, we get to, when we get to Moses, this is, this is one of the hard parts about the Mosaic Covenant, um, there are some promises that God makes that, that do depend on the people's righteousness, like staying in the land. Um, but we're never going to see a covenant because it's all an outworking of the covenant of grace. We're never going to see a covenant uh, in which God puts conditions on him remaining in relationship with humanity. Um, so, you know, salvation itself is never going to be something that's a, a matter of bilateral action. 
Um, it just couldn't be. You know, we would never be able to, uh, to fulfill that. Um, but let's talk about Genesis 17. Um, so it starts off actually sounding somewhat bilateral. Um, in the sense of it starts off with it sounding like God is, is putting conditions um, on this. So it says at verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Um, now, I want to argue that this is not God flipping the switch um, and suddenly dealing with humanity on the basis of its righteousness. Um, this is a little bit like when Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Um, it does not say there, you know, uh, in, that, in that part of the account, you know, because Noah was a righteous man, because he was blameless, therefore God picked him. It just says he found favor in the eyes of God. Um, here, when God says to Abraham, be blameless, um, walk before me, be blameless, um, there's a couple reasons that that can't be a condition uh, for a relationship uh, with him. Um, the main one being simply that he's already in relationship with him. Like he's already begun to relate to him. Uh, he's already chosen him. Um, and he's already done so uh, knowing that Abram has no merit to bring uh, to the relationship. Um, and in 17, that's really clear uh, because we've just been through chapter 16. Um, if you just sort of let your eyes go up, you know, one chapter. Um, Genesis 16 is the story, story of Sarai and Hagar. Um, it's a story of Ishmael. Um, it's, it's not a very high point in the story of, of Abram. Um, it's a point at which he demonstrates his lack of trust in God. You know, God has promised him a son, right? And basically he runs out of patience. He says, this is, this is just taking too long. Um, the only way I'm going to get a son uh, is if I take matters into my own hands um, and have a son with this servant girl instead. Um, and he puts Ishmael forward. He says, God, how about this one? You know, he says, oh, that, that Ishmael may walk before you, which is basically him saying, how about this son? Like, this could be the son of the promise. Um, you know, he deals poorly with his wife. He deals poorly with this, with this servant girl. Um, you know, this, this is a point at which um, what's on display is how fearful a person uh, Abram is. Um, how evident it is that he really is not worthy, you know, on his own merits of, of being the one who's chosen. Um, and yet God comes to him, you know, having already made this unilateral covenant with him, he comes to him now a second time um, and says, no, I really am going to fulfill my promise. I really am going to cement this covenant with you. Uh, and now I'm going to give you a sign. Uh, and that's what Genesis 17 really introduces. Um, it's not new conditions placed on the covenant, um, but there's a new sign given, uh, which, is, uh, which is circumcision. So, so here's Genesis 17, 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he is who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
So, like I said before, um, the sign of a covenant um, typically represents either the blessings associated with it uh, or the curse associated with it. Um, in this case, it actually represents some of both. Um, so on the one hand, um, there is a reason that God chooses circumcision. Um, and it is that, again, this promise that he has made, uh, the promise that he made way back in Genesis 3, and which is moving the plot of Genesis forward, um, is this promise of seed, this promise of offspring, this promise that there will be another child, there'll be another generation. Uh, you know, I've said before that when you get to those genealogies in Genesis that are really hard to read, because um, it looks like just a bunch of lists of names, um, those things are part of the story. Like, those things are there to demonstrate God being faithful again and again and again, another generation, another generation. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, so on the one hand, um, you know, this is a sign which, which calls to mind um, uh, the promise uh, that, that God has made. Um, on the other hand, um, there is this last verse about, you know, the one who is not circumcised is cut off from his people. And again, we're, um, we're playing with the word cut, right? Um, you know, circumcision is... Uh, something that involves a blade. Um, and so it also calls to mind this curse of being cut off uh, from the people. Um, so it indicates these two things. On the one hand, um, the need for cleansing. Um, and on the other hand, being included uh, in the covenant. Uh, and so there's this, there's this relationship established here um, where it is a sign, an indicator of the relationship that God has made with the person uh, who's being circumcised, uh, with the person who's being included uh, in the covenant community. Um, and at the same time, you know, because it's a community, um, there's also a relationship established with the rest of that community uh, that, you're, that you're brought in, uh, that you're a part of these people. Um, and those two really have to be interpreted uh, in terms of one another. Um, that, on the one hand, to be a member of this community is to be cleansed. Um, and to be cleansed is to be a member of this community. Um, one mistake uh, that Israel makes um, as, they, as they go along um, is to see circumcision as being um, uh, the source um, of their cleanliness, the source of their superiority relative to other nations, you know, as though it was just a sort of a badge um, of, of membership. Well, we do, I mean, so one thing that circumcision indicates um, is how inclusion in the covenant community can take place um, without any contribution uh, from the person themselves. Um, the fact that this is something that is done to eight-day-old males um, you know, it, it, it is saying like these people are going to be included in this community uh, essentially from birth, 
you know, before they have an opportunity uh, to do or to say or to choose anything. Um, they just are a part of this, of this community. Um, at the same time, I think it's great how God explicitly points out it's not only something for those who are born uh, into the family of Israel, you know, into, into Abraham's family. You know, he explicitly says, um, you know, anyone who, um, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner, um, anyone who becomes part of your community is to have this sign on them, you know, and to be uh, fully included, you know, fully a part of the, of the community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of circumcision and it being a precursor for being included into the Israelite community and into God's community, um, then so this is something that happens to um, boys and you know back then like women were included either like under their father or their husband. Mm-hmm. For a girl who is like say the daughter of say a man who is not circumcised. Is there no hope of her joining the Jewish community unless she marries into it? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I don't know how it would be. So the answer has to be no. No, there's not no hope. Yes, there is hope. Right. I mean, there are exam- There are examples. Um, but I, uh, what I don't know the answer to is I don't know what they would do. Okay. I don't know, like, what... I don't know exactly what provision is made um, for that. Um, but there are examples. Um, you mentioned Rahab. Um, you know, you can, you can look through that genealogy in Matthew you know, and find these, these four different women, all of whom are... Uh, but they do marry circumcised men. I think Rahab's Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. We need to wrap up here. Um, <clears throat> so I think the last thing um, that I want to do, so I, I, on your handout there are uh, several New Testament passages. We won't go through all of those right now, um, but maybe this afternoon. Uh, take a look. Uh, some of the ways that Paul... Um, deals with these with these stories. Um, Colossians 2, um, somebody asked me if I could talk about infant baptism, uh, and I don't have time to do that right now, but we are going to come back to uh, the new covenant. We're going to come back, to, and so there'll, there'll be an opportunity, and the church, uh, and so there'll be an, an opportunity to talk about the relationship between circumcision and baptism, but these verses in Colossians 2 are central for that. Um, I think the, the last thing I want to say is just to, to, to draw all these things together. Um, remember, as we're going through covenant theology, it's not a matter of God starting one covenant and then getting to a point and saying, okay, that one's not working, so I need to replace it with something else. Um, these different covenants that we're going to read about are always building on each other. Um, you know, it's, it's one story. Uh, building towards the new covenant, building towards Christ uh, as the fulfillment of everything. And I think the thing that binds the covenants that we've looked at to, to today together, you know, is this notion of God um, demonstrating that he is a God who does not, you know, when he judges, he doesn't wipe everything out, um, but he brings humanity through the judgment graciously. Um, he cut off, so I, I, I noted this word play on the word cut uh, in all of these stories. The, the flood cuts off life from the earth. That's what God says in Genesis 6. I'm going to cut off life from the earth. Um, and then in circumcision, the one who is not cut in their flesh by circumcision is cut off from the people. Um, I noted before that the word for making a covenant is cutting a covenant. Um, what we're seeing in, uh, in these stories is a God uh, who judges sin, uh, who acts uh, decisively uh, to arrest sin and to not allow it to have sway uh, and to thwart his purposes. 
um, but who does so in a way that he brings people through that judgment. Um, so he brings Noah through the flood. Um, he's going to bring a nation uh, through his judgment um, and gives him this sign of, of circumcision um, to say that although humanity deserves to be cut off uh, from me, um, you are being cut in. You are being cut into this relationship uh, with me. Um, we'll have to come back to that. I mean, that's a, that's a theme that we're going to build on um, throughout this, uh, this, this course. Um, but that, that idea of deliverance through judgment uh, is, is a big one. Um, so we should wrap up there. I will stay and, and I can talk about questions uh, for a while uh, afterwards. Um, but let me just pray for us. Um, Father, again, uh, as we go to worship, um, we, um, we ask uh, that you would uh, enable us to do so, um, that you would uh, give us hearts. There's, there's a place um, in, uh, in, in one of Paul's letters you know, where he talks about um, being circumcised in the flesh of our hearts, um, of, that, of that sign, you know, cutting uh, to our depths. Um, you know, cutting into, into, into who we are. Um, and uh, that is something that we rely on you for. Um, we rely on your spirit uh, to be with us. Uh, and so we would ask for that. We would ask for your presence uh, as we go to worship you now. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.